Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I teach Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, our Dean of Students and Professor of Old Testament, Dr. Gray Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology, Dr. Tommy Keene, Academic Dean and Professor of New Testament, and Dr. Paul Jean, Instructor in New Testament and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, our real pastor on the call. And we're continuing on now in our discussion of the Apostles' Creed. Um, We are now to the clause that is known in certain theological circles as the desensus clause or phrase where it says, after Christ was crucified, died and was buried, this next phrase, which I know many of our listeners have probably even thought about when they were reciting this in church. The next phrase says, and he descended into hell. And this is probably of all of the passages, all the articles of the Apostles' Creed, this is probably the most controversial, just in terms of its historical provenance, where it comes from. It doesn't occur in some of the earliest texts of the creed. There are versions of the Apostles' Creed in history that says he was crucified, died, and was buried, and then continues on then to the resurrection. There are ones that say he was crucified, died, and descended into hell or into Hades, and then continues on to the next section. But it's not until later in the progression of the creed that you actually find these two next to each other, the idea of him being Christ being buried and descending into Hades or hell. Uh, So some have said, is this redundant? Is it a result of bad theology? Or is it rightly articulating the teaching that we find in Scripture? And so there's been a bit of confusion about this one, and um, we're going to discuss it today, some of the implications of all of those conclusions. So Tell you what, let me start with you, uh, Gray. Would you kind of open up for us just some vignettes in the Reformed tradition where we see Reformed theologians interacting with this dissensus phrase? Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I think, as you mentioned, there's a lot of technicalities that go into interpreting this clause. This is talking about Hades. What does it mean by Christ going to hell? But when you take a look at the Reformed tradition, uh, it's actually quite a simple take on this particular clause. The Heidelberg Catechism, for example, talks about uh, the descent to hell in question and answer 44. It actually discusses this in terms of what it's supposed to instill for the Christian believer, namely to assure us that during attacks of our deepest dread and temptation that Christ, my Lord, has already suffered worse for me, that he had suffered the worst pains of hellish anguish and torment it says uh, so that when we're suffering we know that the worst has been taken away from us and we take a look at the westminster uh, larger catechism i think it was question 50 it talks about christ being fully under the power of death until the third day so that he he suffered and experienced death to the utmost so that he truly did die for our sake so despite the complexities that might attend what this particular clause means the reformed tradition had always taken this to mean that Christ's death was truly efficacious for me. I could be assured. And hence, when I, too, am facing my own death, I can be reminded of the fact that the power of death no longer has any bearing upon me precisely because of Christ's work here. So I think we should keep that in mind as we consider some of the other complexities here that we're coming back to. What does it mean that he's he's, he's descending here into hell, the technicalities of it? Yeah, the idea that 
whatever judgment he's taking upon himself, whatever alienation of God that is being imputed upon Christ is in, is in its full. Right. I think, right. I think that's kind of what I get. I gather also from Calvin's reading of it. It's, it's in its full, it's complete, it's total. However, how do we engage then with some of these more complicated views? As a matter of fact, I would venture to say that I think most Christians, even Reformed Christians, sitting in church reciting the Apostles' Creed when the pastor says, dear Christian, what do you believe? <laughs> they, they're citing the Apostles' Creed, and they are probably imagining some kind of thing that happens after the physical death of Christ where he goes somewhere, he does this thing. What is some of the rationale for that kind of thinking? Yeah, I think what we can be rightly wary of is probably a view sometimes associated with the Roman Catholic tradition, where somehow the saints of the Old Testament were in purgatory. They were still in need of a final redemption, and they were waiting there until Christ died, and then he turned there, and then he rescued them out of purgatory, and then he lifted them up into heaven. So that's the kind of a rescue mission view of the census, mm -hmm. and we should be rightly wary about that. So that's something that we can be wary of. But at the same time, we can't also eclipse the fact that Christ descending into hell is not just a redundant clause, is it? So even though we're going to avoid the purgatory view, it's not redundant for the creed to certainly say here that he not only died and was buried, but he also did descend into hell. And so here, I think we need to talk about what it means that Christ descended into Hades and how that might be different than the popular imagination's conception of hell, perhaps. Yeah. And that does, it raises this, this question that I'd like to put to you all as well. There's really two issues going on here, right? There's kind of the metaphysical theological issue. What's, what's happening with Jesus after he, and interestingly, after he says, you know, according to Luke 23, you know, uh, unto you, Father, I commit my spirit, right? What's happening after, you know, according to John, John 19, 19, 20, he says, it is finished. Is there something else that needs to be added to? Is, is there something else that happens? That's kind of the, the metaphysical question. And then there's this other question is, whatever the Apostles' Creed is saying, what do Christians modern day, how do they typically use the word hell, which is the way we use it now in English? What does that mean to people? What are, what are they probably assuming here is one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith? And, and, and so it raises that question too. So I guess there's two kinds. There's kind of the source language problem and there's, there's the target language problem. So I'll venture a comment on that. I think that when we take a look at, for example, the narrative on, of, of the thief dying on the cross, right? Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Mm -hmm. so which seems to presuppose, therefore, that whatever happened after Jesus' death, he did not go to a different place other than heaven with the thief on the cross, right? So we're not going to be suggesting here that the sentence to hell is an added thing other than the death of Jesus Christ that does something here, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, we could take a look at First Peter 3 as well there and talk about that, but that might be taking us a little bit too far. Yeah. Uh, so we don't want to say that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is insufficient for atoning for our sins, do, do we? I no, we don't. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Tommy. I was kind of uncertain there. One of the things, though, that you know, thinking about the ways in which this phrase is not redundant, one of the things that we do need to appropriate, however, is that the cross often does more than we think it does that it represents a victory that is more holistic 
than we typically uh, in our in our Christian circles, we tend to be a, a bit reductionistic. That that what the cross deals with is is exclusively sin and guilt. Now it does deal with sin and guilt, of course it does, but it it does so in a way that brings God's cosmic work into focus. That God is redeeming a new heavens and a new earth. He is he is establishing a heavenly kingdom in which Jesus, wherein Jesus reigns. And the citizens, the brothers and sisters that he has called to him will have perfect communion with him and the father. Like that is what that is what the cross establishes uh, alongside the resurrection. And so that brings in this other component of Jesus's work that is not just about my sins, but about cosmic forces, about the demonic that Jesus puts Satan to flight. And then because he's put uh, Satan to flight believers are able to have greater communion with the father like all of that happens in his death and resurrection on the cross and one of the things that i think the creed is getting at there is those those broader almost cosmic components to the work of christ that's really good it's kind of like the crucified died and was buried article is highlighting this kind of natural progression of the events he descended into hell is kind of drawing out these theological cosmological themes yeah and does that follow yeah yeah, it does and it is complex to talk about something like first peter 3 18 through 22 and and so with some fear and trembling i mention it again as as gray has mentioned it but it's an important text in that regard it's the hardest no one disagrees that it's the hardest text in the new testament it's got all the things it's got text critical problems it's got translation issues it's got theological issues it it, scholars don't like to agree on things but they all agree it's a really hard text but whatever it means it gets at that cosmic scope all of the interpretations get at that cosmic scope of of jesus's victory over not only our sin and death but the demonic forces that oppress us and the way in which the uh, fall has brought all of the earth under, under the curse. And in that sense, what we can say is Jesus not only conquers our sin, but he conquers everything that the fallen world entails. That's really there, good. There is a, a interesting imagery. I know, I, I think it's in Isaiah 47. Scott, maybe you can... Uh, help me if you can remember where uh, you have this sort of where I can't help but wonder the the he descended into hell has this sort of apparent dethroning idea that uh, not that Christ ever lost his throne as king but that there is a sense in which uh, his suffering on the cross his death his burial was a, an apparent defeat where in Isaiah 47, you have this, it's not, uh, it's actually of Babylon, where Babylon is actually being dethroned. And there's actually an interesting comparison with the Descent of Ishtar text in the ancient Near Eastern world, where, where, where you have this sort of descent into the netherworld of Ishtar, and she is being, and it, it's a way of her being portrayed as being kind of dethroned as the queen of the ancient world. I don't know if this is going anywhere. I'm trying to recall the passage in Isaiah because I think I know what you're referring to. And, and it does highlight that this, this idea of descending into death and then emerging victorious 
would have been a common mode of thought, right? This would have been a common sort of process through which in the ancient Near East and in the classical world, we would talk about, you know, a, a deity having or, or an individual having the victory, right? This You see this as well with, you know, the Osiris cult in Egypt too, where he's buried in the soil and then out of him springs life and it's Osiris is dying and then out of him springs new life in the new year, you know, and that kind of thing. And I, and I think there's clearly, you know, th- this mode of thought is laid hold of as we would expect, uh, you know, in the text of the Bible, because the author is writing in a way that's intelligible, right? Intelligible to, to his audience. And that, and that brings this question of, you know, views of what happens after someone dies in the Old Testament and how that progresses. You know, we've all been talking about offline this article written by Chuck Hill. Charles Hill teaches New Testament down at RTS Orlando. I actually believe this is uh, he's retiring now or he's in the process of retiring from RTS Orlando. And he gave a chapel talk years ago when actually our faculty down there, when I was on the faculty there, went through the Apostles' Creed in a series of chapel talks. And he talked about this clause and, and, and argued that there is a, a kind of change that happens, that in the Old Testament, you have this idea of an afterlife and everyone goes there and it's called Sheol, uh, which is represented at times as a pit. It's represent, represented as a place where the shades are kind of murmuring, shades being the spirits of those who have died. Sometimes it's used as a place of judgment and sometimes it's used kind of as a place where everyone goes. It's kind of a vague ambiguous location, right? There's not a clear heaven or hell following death in the Old Testament. And you know, Chuck Hill raises the question, you know, is this, so is this sort of an ontological reality? Is this, is this actually the case that, that even the saints in the Old Testament are in a certain state that is changed when Christ dies and then rises from the dead? Or is this kind of more of an issue of progressive revelation where we have you know, a, a more kind of vague picture of the afterlife. There is a notion of justice beyond the grave in the Old Testament. Maybe even in certain passages, uh, you know, a notion of, of resurrection of some kind. And yet it becomes much more clear in the New Testament. Or is there actually a shift that happens? And actually in this article, we'll put the, we'll put the link in the, in the notes. You know, Chuck, Chuck Hill makes the argument that there actually is a, perhaps a change in status from this kind of general place where the saints of the Old Testament go to being in the heavenly Jerusalem that Christ has, uh, Christ has brought them into following his death on the cross. So it's an interesting question. There's a, there's, there's a lot of themes kind of at play here in this, you know, in this one little passage showing up in the Apostles' Creed. It's a great article. I found it really interesting. And the first time I'd encountered that view, you know, from a reform perspective, really, really helpful. Um, still processing it, uh, I, I tend to be on the epistemological side, but what uh, that, that, that we're seeing an increase in our knowledge of revelation co- coming to play in, the, in that transition from old to new. But on the flip side, you know, we look at revelation, we look at, you know, what happens cosmically when Jesus dies and was raised. There is a, a power that is stolen from Satan in that respect, that he is bound that he is no longer able to uh, wield his power in the way that he was. And so there is a, just this interesting cosmic shift that takes place. And, and so that the world is different now 
And it'd be interesting to think how that applies to death in particular. Yeah, there's this ongoing creation theology in the Bible that when God does mighty works of redemption and judgment and revelation, that creation responds. Uh, you see this in the prophets, whether it's earthquakes or the sky being darkened because of God's judgment, or even in your Christ's incarnation, there's this star that guides people to <laughs> the birth, the, the, the birthplace, the incarnation of Christ. It's an interesting idea that in Christ's conquering of death and his dethroning of Satan, as it were, in his victory over the effects of the fall, right, his complete dominance, that there's this shift in the world order, okay? And you have to argue that something like this is going, there's this shift in the world order and even the afterlife is being changed as a result of that. And, and like you, Tommy, I, I, I loved it when I heard the talk back all those years ago in Orlando from Chuck Hill. And I, and I loved reading the article again and kind of getting associated, you know, getting sort of familiar with it again. And I think it also raises the question, it, even if there is a change in status, do we need to understand the descent into hell in the way that it's commonly understood now? Right. Cause I think that's, that's, that's a little bit of a different question. When he also brings about brings out the point that when we see the word hell, and this was to your point, Scott, about our target language, when we think of the word hell, you know, we have this popular image in our head that is fed to us from from tradition, but also just from comic books and TV shows and all those kinds of things as well that doesn't necessarily match the biblical definition from an Old Testament or New Testament perspective. I'd love to hear you Old Testament guys, your thoughts on kind of a, an Old Testament cosmology, Gehenna, Hades, etc. In the Old Testament, Tommy, you do have this picture of the world being you know, commonly understood to being set amidst the waters. Okay, we see this in Genesis 1, right? You have, you have the, the waters of chaos, the primordial waters. Land is brought out of it, Ha Eretz, the land, the earth is brought up out of it, and it's, it's a place where life can happen. And interestingly, throughout the scriptures, the sea remains a place where death and chaos is. And then you get these little glimpses into this broader cosmology in passages, books like you know, Jonah, particularly Jonah's song in Jonah 2, where there's this idea that underneath the earth, there are these primordial waters, and that's also where... Sheol resides. That's the place of the dead. And, uh, you know, I remember Mark Putado down at RTS Orlando pointing out very vividly as a seminary student, you know, to me um, as a seminary student, he was the professor, you know, how in Jonah's song, as he recollects what happens after he's thrown into the ocean, right? He's in the waves and then he's in the seaweed. So what does that mean? He, he was at the top and now he's sunk down to the bottom of the ocean. And then it says he goes into Sheol and the bars of the earth, the bars of the, of the world of the living are shut behind him, right? And of course, that's just poetically alighting upon this sort of thematic cosmology where you have land where life happens, you have sea where is chaos and death, and then down at, in, in the roots of the sea and the roots of the mountains underneath the earth is this place where the dead go, right? And of course, while he's there, Jonah reflects upon the sanctuary, which, of course, is the center of life and worship. He reflects on the temple and says, I will again see the temple one day. And that's the way in which I think even Jesus is using Jonah as a picture, an emblematic 
picture or type for resurrection. He's gone into Sheol and now he's come back out again into the world of the living. So you kind of get these glimpses. Of course, it's not in a sort of systematic theology way. It's usually in a poetic way where Sheol is depicted as this place where all the souls go. Okay. After death. Yeah, that's really good, Scott. I I wonder, you know, even burial versus descent here, you know, we, we, and I, I wonder if, um, you know, when we think of burial, we, we tend to think of being buried kind of six feet under. That's just kind of how burial works in our day. But I don't know if that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Uh, we have a lot of like uh, burial caves. It was more horizontal than vertical descent. And so I can't help but wonder maybe the, the, uh, the descensus here has something more of what, you were, what we've been talking about here, something much more cosmic, uh, much more powerful. And a lot of what you were mentioning is something uh, that reminds me a lot of the um, kind of the divine warrior imagery that we find in the Old Testament. A lot of uh, the Lord battling with uh, with the waters type themes that we see. And there's lots of that in the Psalms and the prophets where the Lord is kind of arrayed in, in holy armor, so to speak. And he is battling with ca- uh, chaos themes, but there all seems to be water theme type related type type ideas leviathan for example even the behemoth in in job is sort of a, a swampy type of type of creature that is in the um areas there and um you know in, in the ancient world as you know the, the all water theme well, not all but a lot of water these water themes has is is associated with chaos with death uh we tend to look at the um you know the waters like the oceans the seas and think of it as being a great vacation spot, which, you know, it, it is, but, you know, if you've ever been on a cruise ship uh, and you're on a, on a, on a boat and you're just looking out into the waters, it, it's quite an impressive, almost overwhelming sight there. You could, uh, you could easily see how people get, can associate the waters with chaos and death. And, and the Lord is the one who is victorious over the waters, over the, over chaos, over death. I, uh, I really liked that description, Peter, and 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 yours, Scott. That's that's really helpful. And one of the things that you said that was really, I think, on target is a lot of times when the Bible talks about these things, it, it uses the poetic, it uses metaphor and figure figurative imagery to address what happens in the afterlife after we die. That's an important point to remember. We we aren't given kind of a an engineering schematic of what happens. And that can be a little bit unsettling, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When when the Bible talks about heaven and hell, we get this very intense imagery, but it is imagery and it is poetic. And so that can be unsettling because, you know, we want to know precisely what happens. G- give me the steps. But we don't know what life outside the body is like. And that's that's just going to be hard for us to conceptualize but amidst that unsettling, like I don't know precisely what's going to happen, amidst that unsettling knowledge, I go back to, again, Jesus's words to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. We do have some very clear statements that for the Christian, because of Jesus's descent into hell, because Jesus has unhinged the demonic forces, because of his victory and his present reign in heaven, we have great hope for our life after we die, we will be communing with our Lord and Savior. Yeah. Yeah. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
right? That kind yeah. of language. I think about that because I, I, when I'm teaching sort of the biblical theology of death and chaos, you see this development in the Old Testament and you see places also in the new where it's alighting upon these, this kind of thematic poetic language. I mean, even in the book of Revelation, you know, Revelation 20, what happens? The sea gives up its dead. That's the resurrection. And then what happens in the next chapter? And the sea was no more, right? And what is that showing you? That's showing you that death has been conquered, you know? And we have to be careful about coming to these passages with a very literalistic hermeneutic and not recognizing that this is explaining in poetic, symbolic, emblematic ways, deep theological realities. And I think if we can hold a passage like this one too, he descended into Hades, notably, and we hadn't said this yet, but notably not Gehenna, right? Gehenna is the place of judgment of fire and burning. The term Hades is the one that's used in the Greek Old Testament, for instance, to translate the word Sheol. You know, this is, this is the common word for the underworld. But we're approaching a very deep, profound, cosmological, theological truth in maybe the only way that's appropriate, which is through poetic symbol and, and language, right? And I think that's, that's incredibly helpful in understanding this and, and something that we need to probably be informing our fellow Christians who recite this every Sunday, uh, you know, and, and helping, helping them understand what they're saying when they answer that they believe that Christ ascended into hell. Yeah, if anything, this clause really reminds us, like the entire creed, they really have an unembarrassedly supernatural worldview. Yeah. Christianity and the scriptures really disclose to us an entire public cosmology, even if it does so in poetic ways. It really shocks us out of our modern sensibilities. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, I tend to think, well, that doesn't really happen here today anymore, or maybe that's just a past description, but there are better ways to say things now. But really, the Bible is inviting us to renew our vision of reality, that there is a transcendent God and there is a cosmological vision here that we need to attend ourselves to. Yeah. As a young man growing up reading Lord of the Rings, one of the things that in, in retrospect I realized I loved about Lord of the Rings is that as you're reading it, you realize that Tolkien has this whole world behind the book that he hasn't told you all about, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like he'll, he'll cite Elvish and not translate it, you know, or you'll, you'll hear about a, a, a character who's not a main character in the book. And it's just because they're a part of the history of middle earth. And I've always thought that that was one of the things that sort of draws or drew me into the books and actually kind of more broadly, human speaking draws us into reality, right? That's part of the beauty of reality is the sense of this. There's, there's much more going on here than we're aware of. You know, I think that's the sense of the transcendent, the sense of meaning and purpose. Okay. So all that's kind of a big statement. I love that about the apostles creed that it has a phrase like this. this is why, you know, it's like, I don't think it should be taken out. Right. It's not redundant. But what is it doing as we're going through the story of the gospel? It's also reminding us that there's this universe of redemption behind the things that we're talking about, and we don't fully comprehend all of it. Amen. Well, friends, it's been great to sit here and discuss this passage with you. I think, as is often the case in our conversations, I understand the topic a lot better. And I also realize how much more there is for me to know about it and to delve into it. And uh, I thank you for uh, spending this time and having this conversation. I'm really enjoying going through the Apostles' Creed and just unpacking these 
articles from all of our different disciplines as well and hearing um, your thoughts on it. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. So until then, take care. primed and ready Peter. i was teeing that up for you bro <laughs> I was teeing that up. i'm thinking i'm thinking can i you can i start it peter and you pick up you pick it up and run absolutely unless you want to take it you can take it no 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 i'm thinking i'm thinking